Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 946. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Join with me, please, in prayer. Father, surely there are many among us who arrive to the preaching of your word bleary-eyed on a New Year's Day, having rung in the new year. I pray that you would give to them the grace to be awake and attentive to the preaching of the word of Christ. Surely there are others who are distracted or disinterested I pray that you would give them grace to likewise be attentive and awake to the things that we'll hear from your word today. I am so painfully aware, Father, of my inability in my own strength to affect the things that I'm desperate to see your word affect, not only in the hearts of these hearers of mine, but even in my own heart. I need your work. And so would you please work among us by your Holy Spirit? Would your Spirit attend the preaching of the Word in power today, doing more with this message than could ever be done in my own strength? We plead with you for it, for our sake, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Back in September, at our 30th anniversary celebration, I said that at our 40th anniversary celebration, I'm praying that we're inviting the folks to that party who used to go here but who now belong to a church plant in Burlington or in Shelburne or both. And I said I'm praying that we've got a church plant or revitalization in Rhode Island where it turns out Pastor Wes is preaching today in Newport. And I said that we here at CMC, I'm praying that we're like grandparents with pictures in our wallet or on our phones of the granddaughter churches that have been planted from the churches that our church has planted throughout New England. You should know that I and the rest of the elders aren't interested in this church fellowship in particular becoming as large as it can be as an end to itself. We want to grow because we want to plant locally again. And we want to seed a local plant with a strong core group of weight-bearing believers. And then, Lord willing, we want to do it again. So it's appropriate to ask, how is it that CMC will be able to plant locally again? Are we ready right now? I don't think so. So how is it that we get there? And how do we get there in a way that leaves CMC in a position to continue to plant locally and beyond, even when we've sent off beloved brothers and sisters to help in a new work? In a word, evangelism. The healthiest way for a church to grow, as we've seen in our church's 30-year history, 
The healthiest way for a church to grow is to be a church filled with people who are excited about getting the gospel to people dead in their trespasses and sins. If we want to grow so as to send people out, and if evangelism, what I'm calling gospel heralding in this message, if that must be a primary growth strategy for our church, then there are some things about gospel heralding that we must know and that we must respond to by faith. So why is gospel heralding necessary if our church is going to grow? What ought to motivate you, every single one of you who's a believer, what ought to motivate you to participate in gospel heralding? And how do you go about doing it? We're going to begin to answer those questions today. And we must know the answers to those questions because New England is dying on the spiritual vine and her only hope is having the landscape flooded, flooded with gospel outposts and gospel heralds. Now I'm going to begin to make my case to you this morning for the profound necessity of every Christian participating in evangelism and gospel heralding by talking to you first about the sinner's plight. And maybe it'll be helpful to you if you find the outline to the sermon in your bulletin or by going online to cmcvermont.org slash gather. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes a watertight case for the lostness of every person, man, woman, boy, Girl, let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. So if you're not familiar with your Bibles and you still have your Bibles open to the book that our brother Scott read from earlier, it's the same book, the book of Romans. Scott read to us from chapter 10. I'm asking you to turn to chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And if you're using a pew Bible, which I invite you to do, and I invite you to take it home with you if you don't have a Bible of your own, You'll find Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. You'll find that on page 940. 940. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now who's the there in these verses whose throats are open graves and whose feet are swift to shed blood, who have no fear of God? Well, Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This is a universal indictment on everyone who descended from Adam and Eve, which is every human, save the virgin-born Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 about the universal sinfulness of humanity. Why is that such bad news? It's because of what he's going to go on to say later in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Twice in Ezekiel 18, God says, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. And whose soul sins? Everyone. I want to say to you guys, don't, don't come at what we're talking about today with assumptions. There are probably some growth areas for you where you could gain some clarity. Don't think that a person 
is innocent before the Lord until he or she is born and commits a sin. No, Adam's sin stained all of humanity, even from the womb. David confesses in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is saying that before he could ever make a conscious choice to sin, he was already stained with sin, and so were you. And so were your children, even your precious babies, even my precious babies. Your neighbor or your friend who is a kind and decent spouse and decent parent and who doesn't swear and who volunteers at the homeless shelter and who doesn't blow his leaves into your yard and who bakes Christmas cookies for the neighborhood but isn't a Christian, even if he or she is a devout participant in some other faith, they are not righteous in God's eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes, according to the word. They are stained with Adam's sin, and so they are guilty. And the soul who sins shall die. And they're guilty of sin. At the very least, even if they're kind people, they're guilty of the heinous sin of not obeying God's command to have faith in his Son. And the wages of every person's sin, every person's sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. The paycheck that sin earns at the end is death. Physical death, yes. But even worse, the death the Bible calls the second death. Eternal death in hell and in the lake of fire. That's the sinner's plight, their condemnation before Almighty God. And if you are outside of Christ today, that's the condemnation in which you remain right now. Jesus says in John chapter 3, those who have not believed are condemned already. And appreciating the sinner's plight helps you to understand this absolute necessity of gospel heralding. Now, there's another reason why gospel heralding is necessary. It's because of what I'm calling creation's intended limits. In Psalm chapter 19, King David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, that is the voice of creation, goes out through all the earth, and their, war, uh, their words to the end of the world. So we see from the scriptures that creation, the skies above, And the wonders of the earth and sea below. It all proclaims God's handiwork. And the voice and the words of creation are singing, as it were, of God's existence and his greatness. And it goes through all the earth and to the end of the world. David says there is no one who's able to perceive anything with their senses to whom creation isn't singing the excellencies of the creator. And yet... According to God's design, creation's message has its limits. It can tell of God's existence. It certainly testifies of God's majesty. But creation's revelation, according to the intention of Christ the Creator, creation's revelation is not saving revelation. Going back to the book of Romans, Paul writes in chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Creation's designed, intended testimony to you is that there is a God so that you are without excuse. If you die claiming to be an agnostic or an atheist and before the judgment seat you try and tell God, well, I didn't know whether you were real, he will say to you based on his word, yes, you did, my creation told you of me.
I'm wondering whether some of you derive comfort about the state of a friend or a loved one's soul because they like to go out in nature and commune with God. Are some of you comforted about the state of a loved one's soul? Are you comforted about the state of your soul? Because you can imagine saying things like, when I went to the Grand Canyon or when I was snorkeling off the coast of Florida or when I saw, when I saw a sunset on Mount Philo, I knew there must be someone up there. No, dear ones. Creation's intended limit for revelation is to reveal that there is a God, to cause a person to be without excuse, to cause a person, frankly, to be a liar if he or she says, I don't believe there's a God. No, if a person is going to be saved... It's going to be because somebody gets the gospel message to him or to her. And God hasn't designed creation for that. Gospel heralding is necessary because of God's design for conversion. We've been saying every person is born in Adam and stands guilty before God, even from the time of conception in a mother's womb. And creation, creation is sufficient to testify about God's existence and his glory, but not to testify concerning the gospel. No, God's Plan A for saving sinners from death and hell and the grave is someone, namely you, Christian, being a participant and getting the gospel to every person. That's God's design for conversion. Someone getting the gospel to sinners. Now, first, to make this argument, I want to look at the logical case that the apostle makes for this in Romans chapter 10. That's the verses we heard our brother Scott read earlier. And then I want to look quickly at a couple of case studies from the book of Acts. So turn back with me to Romans 10. That's page 946 in the Pew Bibles. I'm not going to read again all the verses that Scott read, but I want you to see that Paul is making a very tightly connected, logical case for God's design for conversion in these verses. And Paul's argument undergirds why I'm saying there is a necessity for gospel heralding that creation can't accomplish if a person who's born in Adam is going to be saved. All right, you're in Romans 10. Look with me at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, amen. If a person with genuine, heaven-sent repentance and faith calls on the Lord for salvation, he or she will be saved. But now, follow the apostles' reasoning. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This is a series of rhetorical questions. The answer is, they won't. They won't call on him in whom they've not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom, or him whom, They've never heard. They won't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They won't. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? They won't. And then in verse 17, Paul draws for us the conclusion that these series of rhetorical questions are supposed to cause us to arrive at in our thinking. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith, saving faith, being saved, being born again, coming to faith, being converted, whatever phrase you prefer, faith comes from hearing. What kind of hearing? Hearing the word of Christ, the scriptures, the gospel from the Bible. Faith does not come from creation's general revelation of God. Faith comes from the Bible's special revelation of God. It's this book as it reveals Christ and his saving work for sinners. This book that's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul said to Timothy. According to God's design for saving his people, a design that he's revealed to us in his word, saving faith requires somebody getting the gospel to a sinner so that he or she can repent from their sins and believe the gospel unto eternal life. That's how God saves. In many a 
Stump the Chump session over the years, people have asked, and sometimes I think this is a sincere inquiry, what happens to the person in the jungle who never hears the gospel? It's always someone in a jungle, it seems like. (laughs) And some have wrongly and foolishly concluded that God shows the people who have never heard the gospel some kind of exceptional saving grace, because how could God hold it against them? I mean, after all, they never had the chance to believe, right? No. The person who dies having never heard the gospel, and I want you to put aside for now the question of those who die before birth or in infancy or young in life or those with profound mental disabilities, The person who dies having never heard the gospel dies in his or her sin because that person was born in Adam. That person is among those described in Romans 3. They're not righteous. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so since everyone is born in Adam stained with sin, the person who dies never having heard the gospel receives from God the just payment for their sin, which is eternity under God's wrath. You have to be clear on this. This, by the way, is a major reason why Sarah and I moved to New England. This region, which was once a gospel lighthouse to the rest of the country, and in some respects through the missionaries sent from New England, was a gospel lighthouse to the world, This region now contains untold thousands and thousands who've never heard the gospel, who have never heard the gospel. I feel very confident saying that unless you live on the Nets campus, there are people on your street who have never heard the gospel. And God's not going to send them some supernatural being to give them the gospel. He has entrusted that task to his people. Creations, not telling of the gospel. And God's not using some plan B to get the gospel to people. He's entrusted that task to his people. I told you I wanted you to see a case study for what I'm talking about. So turn with me to Acts chapter 10. So we're in the book of Romans. Turn left one book to Acts chapter 10. In the Pew Bible, that's on page 918. We're still in the category of the necessity of gospel heralding. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, what's going on here? A Gentile named Cornelius was a participant in the Jewish religion. That's what Luke means here when he's calling him a devout man who feared God in verse 2. Cornelius wasn't a Christian. He wasn't saved. But as he's doing these sincere religious activities on a certain day, an angel appears to Cornelius and tells him to send men to Joppa and bring back with them to Cornelius' house Simon Peter. Around this same time, Peter gets a vision of a sheet in which there are all these unclean animals, including pigs. This is the first pigs in a blanket. (laughs) And then the Bible says 
that Peter gets to Cornelius' house. And pick it up in verse 33. Peter says to Cornelius, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter begins then and there to preach the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus to Cornelius. Do you, you can see in the, in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 34. Peter preaches the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus to Cornelius. The Bible says they received the Holy Spirit, which means they were saved and they were baptized. But here's what I want you to see here as we're talking about the necessity of you getting the gospel to your friends and family and those around you. The angel that appeared to Cornelius doesn't preach the gospel to Cornelius. The angel rather tells Cornelius to send for Peter, and it's Peter who arrives and preaches the gospel. That's an important distinction. The angel isn't preaching the gospel. The angel's saying, go get Peter and send him. He'll preach the gospel to you. We see the same thing going on in Acts chapter 8. I won't have you turn there, but it's the account of the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion. An angel is involved there but not in gospel proclamation. Rather, he's telling a man named Philip where to go to encounter the eunuch. And it's Philip who gives the gospel to that man. The gospel from Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy concerning Christ's death and resurrection. And the eunuch believes and is baptized. Now, what's the point I'm trying to make with all of this? It's simply this. No angel is going to get the gospel to the person who lives next door to you or to the person who lives on the other side of the world from you. The reason why gospel heralding is absolutely necessary is because if a sinner would be born again, it's going to be because some person gets the gospel to him or her. That's God's plan A for conversion, and there is no plan B. People getting the gospel to other people is the only way anyone is ever saved. Every sinner needs to hear the gospel if they'll be saved, and creation is insufficient to herald that gospel. That, by God's intended design, is the task of his people. So do you see then the utter necessity of gospel heralding? The eternal lake of fire awaits every sinner who does not trust Christ, and no one's ever going to trust Christ until someone gets the gospel to them. Having seen the necessity of gospel heralding, I want us to now think about the motivation for gospel heralding. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, the fact that gospel heralding is necessary for a sinner to be saved is in itself a motivation to evangelize, but I'm not wanting to motivate you for evangelism primarily because of sinners. Rather, I want to motivate you for evangelism primarily because of the Savior. First, I want you to be motivated to be a gospel herald because you want to obey Christ's command. After the Lord's death and resurrection, just before he ascended back into heaven, Jesus gathered his disciples, and Matthew 28 tells us, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded with you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus reminds his followers of his authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And that authority that's the basis for his ability to issue a command that he expects his people will obey. And what's that command? In light of all my authority, universal authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. To make, it, to make a disciple is simply to see someone converted to Christ. How then do you make a disciple in obedience to Christ's command? Will you labor to get the gospel to people so that they can become Christ's disciples by being saved? The one who is your Lord and Master Christian, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has said to you, 
Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28 isn't the only place Jesus issued such a command. It's the most well-known, but we have other versions of this great commission in Luke 24 and John 20 and Acts chapter 1. That's motivation enough, isn't it? Dear believer, yours is to obey Christ and his command is to herald the gospel. But I also want you to be motivated by a jealousy for Christ's acclaim. I want you to be motivated to herald the gospel to your friends and your family because God has given you the grace to see the loveliness and the excellence and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And you want others to see his glory too. You've come to love him. You've come to see what a treasure he is. And a right response to that is wanting him to be loved and treasured by others. Jesus came, Paul says in Romans 15, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Yes. When you see someone come to faith in Christ, here's another who glorifies God for his mercy. Christ's people want more people glorifying God for his mercy. And that only happens when people are born again. And people are born again only when they're reached with the gospel. Nearly 300 years ago, more than 200 missionaries were sent out from the region of Moravia in the modern-day Czech Republic. If you've ever heard of Count von Zinzendorf, these are his people. Some of these Moravian missionaries willingly sold themselves into slavery so that they would reach slaves with the gospel. And as these missionaries were setting sail for faraway places for the sake of heralding the gospel. They would look back on their loved ones on the shore and they realized in many cases that they were saying goodbye to their loved ones for the rest of their lives. And as they sailed away, these Moravian missionaries would cry out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. These Moravians were clear their motivation was not primarily the benefits that come to sinners when they're converted, though they are many. Their motivation was Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by his death and resurrection. They wanted Christ. They wanted the Lamb to receive the reward of his suffering, the worship of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Maybe this idea is a a little new to you. You can understand being motivated to witness for Christ so that people don't go to hell. That is a fine motivation. But I'm talking to you about another motivation. A jealousy, a holy jealousy for Christ to receive the worship that he deserves from the people he created. A worship he'll only receive when they repent and believe the gospel. This vision is in keeping with what John saw in Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These whom John sees in heaven are praising Christ for his being the lamb who was slain. They're praising his worthiness and they're singing of his praiseworthiness because he was slain. He was slain on the cross and by his blood he ransomed people for God, including you, believer. He ransomed you. He ransomed you from sin's devilish mastery over you. He ransomed you from being a subject of Satan's kingdom. He ransomed you from death and hell and the grave by dying in your place, by satisfying God's righteous anger toward you because of your sins. And then having died on the cross, 
the Lamb of God having been raised victorious, he's now worthy to receive praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And he's worthy of that praise from every person, isn't he? But he'll get it at least happily, only from those who've believed on him. And so let that motivate you in gospel heralding to get the gospel out so that people will believe on him, so that the lamb will have more praise, the praise of which he's so immeasurably worthy. These Moravians went sometimes into slavery. Can you imagine that? so that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. I like the Getty song, O Church Arise, and I love the lyric. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. These Moravians went for the eternal praise to Christ of those from every tribe and language and people and nation. So I'm saying, let a jealousy for the Lord Jesus to receive more worship motivate you to herald the gospel. I also want you to be motivated relatedly by a desire to see Christ's kingdom advance. We've been talking about that today. We've been praying for it today during our share time. How is it that Christ's kingdom advances? It's by gospel heralding. Acts chapter 6, Luke writes, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts 12, Luke says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. In Acts 19, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily amid persecution and opposition. Luke says that the word of God continued to increase, which was connected with the growth of the church, first among Jews, then Gentiles. The word of God's increase is the increase of the church. It's the advance of the kingdom of God. And how does the word of God increase? Well, in lots of ways. Yes, in planting churches and in revitalizing and replanting churches, but also in simply getting the gospel to those around you. You can be motivated in gospel heralding with a desire for Christ's kingdom's advance. Because his kingdom's advance is a sure thing. Now, does that mean that every person you witness to is going to come to faith? No. No. But the Lord Jesus is building his church. And it's not going to stop. And his true church consists of those who will eternally inhabit his kingdom as its happy subjects. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says in Matthew 24, will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is going to happen. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where the king dies to bring people in and where he washes the feet of those over whom he rules. And this kingdom is on the move. It's advancing, and it advances as people hear and believe the gospel from faithful gospel heralds. So, how do you herald the gospel? I'm not going to say everything that ought to be said about this, but that's okay because next Sunday you'll be in the personal evangelism Sunday school class that starts. Related to that, there's an apologetics class that's going to be starting in February. But just to give you some hopefully helpful things to leave this message with, First, if you're going to herald the gospel, you have to know the gospel. It's like the recipe for duck soup. Step one, get a duck. It turns out the essential elements of the gospel are pretty short. Paul records a helpful encapsulation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you know that Christ died for his people's sins, that he was buried, certifying his death, and that he was raised on the third day, you have the essential elements that a person must believe to be born again. You can tell those things to a person while you're taking a one-floor elevator ride with them. And note that the, gospel's, uh, the gospel consists not only of Christ's death, but also his resurrection. Don't leave that out. His death is of no account for our souls unless he was raised again. That's a helpful little part to memorize from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the essence of the gospel that I'm calling on you to herald. Second, I've put in your outline, embrace your role. What do I mean when I say embrace your role? I mean simply this, that evangelism is a team sport and not every role on the team is the same. Some of you are already, your blood pressure starting to rise when you hear an evangelism sermon because you're just so aware of your own perceived inadequacies. I'm saying to you that not every role on the team is the same. Your role on the team might be a person who can interact with a complete stranger and talk with them about the gospel for a really long time and call them to repent and believe the gospel. Hallelujah. Maybe your role on the team is always traveling with a few copies of ultimate questions and giving them out as the occasion arises. Or maybe you make sure that when we print these invitations and make them available to you in the bulletin or at the table in the fellowship hall or at the entrances, you grab a few of them. You invite folks to Easter services or Christmas services or investigative Bible studies or men's nights, these outreach events. Maybe your role on the team is looking to intentionally form relationships with those in the community. Deciding that you'll make a sacrifice of time to be a coach or a volunteer or a member of the PTO for the sake of inviting to church or having gospel conversations. Maybe your role is as simple but as potentially fruitful as just carrying around the little business cards that we have available to you and leaving them with your waiter or waitress with a generous tip at a restaurant. Every Christian, every Christian ought to participate in gospel heralding, but not every Christian is going to herald the gospel the same way. It is faithful evangelism, Christian, for you to get your friend to church. Because by God's grace, you know your friend's going to hear gospel preaching and teaching here. You might not be wired to do what others can do evangelistically, but you can do what you can do. And you ought to do it. I have to think, though, that there are some of you who can step out and do more evangelistically than you have up till now. Some of you do have the ability to engage in gospel conversations to engage in evangelistic Bible studies like we have available on our website. But maybe fear of man has proved to be more a motivator for you than the fear of God who commands his people to herald the gospel. Let me say to you, repent of being a man-fearer and a man-pleaser and resolve by grace that in 2023 you're going to evangelize even just a bit more than you did in 2022. I think our upcoming Sunday school class will be a help to you if you see that as a growth area. Here's a radical evangelism idea. I was reading in the Williston Observer this week that something like 100 housing units are going to be built right up here at Mountain View Road and Old Stage Road. Some of you might sell your house once those are built. 
and move into that neighborhood for no other reason than to bring the gospel to people who will occupy those units and see them added to a church that's going to be just around the corner from them so that our church continues to grow and to multiply. You know, I came to faith as a freshman in college 22 years ago, in part because there were two seniors, Nick and Evan, who decided to move out of the apartment they were living in as upperclassmen and to move to Four North and Russell Hall with a bunch of knucklehead freshman boys. Why did Evan and Nick do that? For the sole purpose of evangelizing all of us freshmen on that dorm hall. And my eternal soul benefited from their sacrifice. Our brother David Knickerbocker, he's a student at the University of Vermont. He's moved from home into the dorms on campus this year. And he's working to get the gospel to the people on his dorm floor. Those kinds of moves seem radical from the world's perspectives, but those decisions aren't radical for the believer because we're clear that people need to hear the gospel if they're going to be saved. Now, I've been saying ought a lot in regard to evangelism. And it is a duty. There's no escaping it. The Lord Jesus commands it. But it's also a delight. And I want you to see gospel heralding as a delight because I think delight takes you further than duty. So what's delightful about gospel heralding? Well, as we talked about earlier, gospel heralding is a chance to boast in the one whom your soul loves. It's a chance, as First Peter puts it, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your being a gospel herald may add to the number of those who worship Christ around his throne eternally. Isn't that a delightful idea? That you're reaching out and talking to a neighbor or a friend or a coworker or whoever bags your groceries or cuts your hair or the like. Your gospel heralding to them may be used by the Lord to add to the number of those who are saying around Christ's eternal throne, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Isn't that a delightful thought? That you might be used for that purpose? Gospel heralding is delightful because the gospel is good news. It's good news of great joy, which is for all the people. It's the message of sins forgiven and wicked sinners being credited with Christ's righteousness. It's the message of being at peace with God and all of his people. It's the message of having eternal life in paradise face to face with the Lord Jesus. It's the message of passing from death into eternal life. That's delightful news to herald. Now, of course there are going to be those who don't see the gospel for the good news it is. For them it's going to be foolishness or a stumbling block. 2 Corinthians 2 says that if you're a gospel herald, you will be to some the fragrance of death. But you know that what you're saying is good news. It saved you, didn't it, believer? And isn't it a delight to tell good news? And this is the best news. This is the news of salvation from sin and death and being found in God's dear son, Jesus, who was made flesh to die and to be raised for his people. So I'm wanting you to get a sense of the delight that it is to herald the gospel. It's a delight to obey our Lord's command. His commands are not burdensome. It's a delight to speak a good word about Jesus, your Savior and friend. It's a delight to tell sinners how they can be born again. And then lastly, by way of application, I would say, in your gospel heralding, pray like it's necessary. Now, of course, it is necessary. But I word it that way because I don't, I don't think that, that how much we pray about evangelism reflects that we really believe prayer is necessary in evangelism. I appreciated our brother Eric praying earlier from the end of Jonah chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. Since salvation belongs to the Lord, it follows that if you want someone to be saved, you're going to be talking to the one to whom salvation belongs. 
Paul says in Romans 10 about his fellow Jews, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's praying to God for their salvation. So in your gospel heralding, pray. Pray because the person you're inviting to church or to whom you're witnessing is never going to be saved unless the Lord is pleased to be merciful to them and to give them the grace to repent and believe the gospel. So since the Lord is the one who alone does the saving, it makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world to beseech him for those to whom you're heralding the gospel. Pray for opportunities. Pray that your antenna would be up for gospel opportunities. Pray that the Lord would give you creative ways to have opportunities. When you know you're going to have a gospel conversation, before that, pray. Pray during that conversation. Pray after. It mustn't go without saying that our gospel heralding cannot and must not be separated from our praying. CMC, I want to see our church grow. And I want to see our church grow so that we can keep planting and replanting and revitalizing. That's the reason that this church was founded in 1992. And that vision was what compelled Sarah and me not to go to Boston, but to stay. We still have a vision, all of the elders, for seeing this church grow so as to send, and then grow and send, and then grow some more and send some more. And how are we going to be in the best position to do that and to recover quickly so that we can do that again? It's for our church to grow. And we're not going to resort to gimmicks to grow. What you catch people with is what you keep people with. And by God's grace, we're going to catch them with the gospel. So saints, will you embrace the delightful duty that is yours to, with a holy jealousy for the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, play your role in heralding this good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that's ours to have been entrusted with the gospel. It's a priceless treasure that is indeed in jars of clay. But you've given it to us and we say thank you. You've given to us the ministry of reconciliation, where we are ambassadors for you, pleading with men to be reconciled to God. And so, Father, help us to grow. Help us to advance in this mission. Please cause CMC to grow for the multiplication of the kingdom of your beloved Son and for his glory alone and not ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.